Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. I'm joined today by Tom McKillicuddy, co-founder of Circa 5000, describing itself as the investment platform of the human future. With a vision of a thriving planet in the year 5000, the company asks us to question whether people will be included in that future. And the answer to a certain human future, impact investing. Circa 5000 offers its customers the chance to invest in the sustainable businesses enriching the planet. Launched in 2019, the company has some 150,000 investors and has had its purposeful credentials recognized through B Corp status. To tell us more, Tom, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, real pleasure. Now, what I was thinking was that, you know, the band busted. They went to the year 3000 <laughs> and, and they said in, in the song, I've been to the year 3000. Not much has changed. But they lived underwater, and your great great granddaughter is pretty fine. Well, you know, let's let's take that aquatic future and sort of fast forward one thousand nine hundred seventy eight years later yeah. up to the year five thousand. Let's get in the TARDIS. What's happening, Tom? <laughs> I'll give you a joke answer that I said the other day, and, and, and my actual hopes. The joke answer is Man United have finally won another Premier League title. Um, <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I think the uh, I'm I'm, a, I'm obviously a United fan, season ticket holder, unfortunately at the moment. But uh, I think the real answer is just something you know relatively simple. I think uh, everybody on Earth has access to good food, good education, housing, clean water, and we've kind of solved the environmental crisis, and we're living in a prosperous kind of version of the future. I think what we kind of stand for is positive futurism. That's what we're trying to do with the brand, with the investments that we make. And so just the basics, all done well and uh, in a good place is what I hope for. I read something that you said that really got me to think. You said, when you take us out of the picture, the world keeps spinning. The future is bright. We're just not in it. I mean, it's a fairly sort of grim prognosis, isn't it? Of the sort of like the the negative side of that that story. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, I was chatting to a mate of mine who, uh, he does physics, he does nuclear physics, and he says, you know, all the climate change stuff that we talk about, we talk about like the earth is going to go extinct, but it's not, it's just mm-hmm. us, you know. So what we stand for is investing in companies that kind of make sure that we are thriving here because the earth will still be here, still be spinning, and we'll still look great. And if you look at a lot of our brand intentionally, it doesn't have pictures of human beings in it. It just has these kind of beautiful, lush images of the future. And the idea is that we're helping to make sure that we are in, in that kind of version of the future, but there's no guarantee unless we actually take action. Well, if, if we bring ourselves back to, to 2022, the immediate prognosis doesn't look great when you look at climate change and you look at you know many of the challenges facing you know sort of humanity and the planet right now in terms of the the immediate things that you see i mean are you one of those that sort of thinks well you know what i remain positive because we're going to innovate our way out of of this issue or is part of the challenge or part of the kind of like the you know the the challenge that you're you're putting out there when you talk about a far off year like that 5,000, circa 5,000. Is that part of trying to get people to think about the long term, the big picture, rather than what happens in the next 365 days, which seems to be yeah. how the world runs, you know, financially, economically, politically. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question, observation, because I think in the short term, things don't look fantastic, especially if you're sitting in certain countries where the political situation is not amazing. That are our ability to solve problems seems to be getting you know, worse in the short term. But I think the intention with the year 5000, with the brand is thinking super long term. And I'd still say the evidence suggests that over, over the long term, humans do kind of innovate and do improve and do solve problems. I mean, that's, there's a lot of more data on that than it going the opposite way. So I still 
back humanity, back us, back the companies, back governments, ultimately, to get our act together and solve these problems. Um, it may not happen in the next few months, but I think it will 100% happen in the long term. There seems to be a lot of short-term thinking, especially in financial services. You know, we see a lot of trading, almost like gambling on the stock market. We're trying to bring about a renaissance in like proper long-term thinking, I think, with the investments that we make and how we think about our place in the world in the future. So I would still back us to solve these problems over a long time frame, even mm-hmm. though it feels quite dark at the moment. But I, you said at the beginning, I am an optimist. I think I, I think you have to be. I think you have to confront reality, but not be pessimistic about it. Because mm-hmm. I think pessimism results in inaction, results in like a downward spiral. I think you have to be realistic and optimistic and try and move things forward. I think that's what we try and do. Let me give you a quote. One, if you can name it. Some people don't like change, but you need to embrace change if the alternative is disaster. It's a great quote. I'm not. We come from one of your great heroes, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean, he features heavily in your lockdown list, and and of course he represents, I guess, the Marmite at the moment in terms of su- superhero or supervillain, as it yeah. was as he was asked. He's become Marmite, and I don't think he's done himself any favors for that because. I think his Twitter presence and some of his more flippant opinions detract from what is probably the greatest entrepreneur, definitely of our lifetimes, if not potentially ever, by the time he's kind of finished, I would say. The way he thinks, he thinks super long-term about these huge long-term structural issues, i.e. getting us off this planet just in case we go extinct. That's Mm. what he's doing with SpaceX, you know, Tesla, et cetera. You know, even his earliest startups that became PayPal and internet currencies and things like that. He's very, very long-term and forward-thinking and he bets his ranch every single time. He he takes massive risks. And that's why he's been an inspiration to me as an entrepreneur. You know, take or leave his Twitter presence. I don't really pay attention to that as much. And I think I wish he wouldn't do that bit because he mm. gives people room to critique him. If you just strip that away, what he's done from an entrepreneurial perspective and for a kind of human existence perspective is undeniable. Mm. And I just wish he didn't do that thing around the edges because it, it gives people the excuse to bash him over the head. You've said that he's your inspiration for, and, and to use in the lockdown that you talk about him continually rolling the dice with his own money for the benefit yeah. of humanity. I suppose that that's what you're saying. But yeah. a lot of people will say, but that's the problem, isn't it? Because, you know, he's likely, you know, whether the Twitter deal goes through or not, that what we are seeing is huge levels of responsibility in the hands of people that, you know, haven't been elected or, and I realize that there's a great tradition of, you know, entrepreneurs and business leaders that own large parts of the media. And most recently we've got people like Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post. But in terms of the role, I guess, of entrepreneurs as the forces for good in this world that Mm. you are seeking to influence this is the moment isn't it in terms of the the need and the requirement whatever you think about the kind of democratic deficit or or the problems i mean i mean is your argument we need a lot more elon musk if we're going to get this job done 100 i I would say that unequivocally i think the twitter thing is a slight is a bit of non-core activity from him that i wish he kind of hadn't done i think if you read between the lines he's regretting it because he's trying to basically pull out of the deal i think in many many ways i think he, he shouldn't have near that but i would say the same really i would apply that that same lens to all the rich people that own media publications whether it's digital or kind of you know you know more traditional in this country and other countries i'm not a huge fan of in you know private individuals having so much kind of say in what people read and how they perceive things so i think that's something that we need to address but elon musk doing it with twitter won't be the first time it's been done and it won't be the probably won't be the last and he won't be the worst you know Mm kind of infected with with very, very wealthy people's opinions all through our kind of media landscape, especially in, in, the, in the UK. But strip that aside, 
the I think whether you whether you like this or not, in order to solve the problems that we need to solve at the scale we need to solve them, we can't rely on governments and charities. And the private sector is exceptionally good at innovating fast, scaling at speed solutions to problems and solutions to problems where there's money on the end of it. So if we can make the world's biggest problems, you know, commercial, you know, opportunities, we can solve them quicker than if they weren't. Mm. So I think Musk has proven that with with Tesla, the you know, the critique of Tesla is it's still cars for rich people, you know, 100%. Hopefully they make them cheaper and cheaper as they get bigger, that's the plan. But I think now it's becoming more and more viable companies like Beyond Meat, Oatly, Tesla, these are brand names that you would never have seen 20 years ago that are, yeah. that from their DNA are, are tackling climate or other issues. I think we need a million more of them. Right. And, and I suppose the segue into talking about Circa 5000 is when you look at Tesla, is that the expectation was that Tesla would fade away as the as, as the bigger sort of car companies got into, into electric cars. But of course, in, in many respects, they've, they've kept those big car companies innovating and changing. Now, your business is very much about motivating the capital markets, the big plumbing of business. So less the entrepreneur, more the kind of those big corporations to be part of the action in, in terms of real world impact. So yeah. in terms of the you know the business and, and what you're seeking to do with that kind of activist approach, tell us a little bit about how it works. Yeah, so I mean, the core of what we do, I mean, if you think about, just to back up for a second, success for Tesla was always about dragging the car industry towards electric vehicles, basically, and proving that you can do it. Now every car maker's got an electric version. Now, that's not diminished the power of Tesla. In fact, you just say it's increased it because their brand is better. They have the better technology. They're the ones, they're the aspirational brand, but it's meant that every car company now is moving in their direction. They've changed the car industry because of what they did. And I think mm -hmm. success for us is that in the investment management industry. So the success for us is we build the most powerful consumer retail investing brand. It's all impact investing. And over time prove that you can you can generate fantastic financial returns with this feel good factor. And in doing so, we drag the rest of the industry with us, but that just kind of reinforces mm. our existence and our pull factor to people. Does it also, because obviously your, your pitch is made up of investing in a portfolio of purpose-led listed companies that already on the stock market. So, yes. I mean, a lot of people, when they look at their their ICEs or their pensions or their savings, increasingly they're becoming much more activist-minded. You know, they don't want fossil fuel companies. They don't want automotive companies. They don't want aerospace, lots of things. Do you see those companies as reformable entities that are part of the answer or are they just irredeemably part of the problem? Yeah, I think it depends on the company, but I would say that they have to be part of the answer. Uh, because these are huge companies with massive resources. So I'm not necessarily saying good company, bad company in what we're doing. That's not kind of what we're trying to, we're not trying to be morally superior to anybody mm -hmm. and say that those are bad, they're not. They, they served a fantastic purpose and still do, you know, in the current economy. So I think that we need them to transition. A parallel in my industry, our industry is BlackRock being the biggest asset manager in the world, 10 trillion of assets under management. It's very easy to critique BlackRock, but we need them. We need them yeah. to change, basically, well, because if, if, if we're going to address any of these problems, we need them to come with us and change. And then ultimately, we want the world to change in this, this forward, this direction. So we need them to come with us. Um, so I think it depends on the companies, but I would, I would never rule any of them out in any industry from mm. changing in a positive way. But I suppose the thing I'm, I'm thinking about, I mean, I think interesting that you've mentioned BlackRock. I mean, I, I think the Larry Flink, Larry Flink annual letters make 
make a huge difference in in the message to the market. And I've, I've interviewed Sir Nigel Wilson from Legal and General, who I think you know is, is possibly the UK's answer to that in terms of the you know the kind of profit with purpose argument. I mean, you're basically investing on the grounds of return, reward, risk, but also impact. And I suppose the the thing that a lot of people talk about in terms of purpose led businesses is that there's a difference between the plumbing and the poetry. Mm. So the poetry is it's a fantastic speech and it's really interesting to listen to and that might be a letter or it might be a you know a, a, a great sort of initiative but but the real plumbing is about the demonstrable change in action and impact mm. how do you know that you're winning how do you know that you are backing the right types of company in terms of how you dig into it that's a great question yeah because i think for us being to be able to demonstrate that is in an integral part to our brand and, and will be, you know, will determine whether we succeed or not and whether we are viewed as authentic ourselves. So we we have our own data. We work with some third parties on research and data. And basically what we do is we have a 27, 28 page report on uh, per company where we dig into the positive impacts and the negative impacts. And we effectively you know weight those against each other and try and invest in companies that pass a certain threshold for positive net impact on the planet Mm. that encompasses everything from the product and service they sell who they sell it to their supply chains their management everything so there's every factor of a company baked into kind of a data point an overall data point and then it's our aspiration to only invest in the companies that are having the most positive impact on a net basis so we use things like one of the one of the easiest ways for people who are not in the industry to understand the first sift the first sift point for us is where does the company get its revenue from so Mm. that separates out the corporate social responsibility statement from the thing you sell because the most important thing is the thing you sell not what you say effectively so we want if if we're investing in a housing company it has to be a housing company that's building affordable homes for certain types of demographics we need that as a data point then we can look at the rest of the business then we can weight that out and then we can choose to invest or not in that in that Mm -hmm. kind of business so we're looking for pure play net positive impact businesses from a revenue perspective right and the customer gets a choice within that right in terms of people or planet or people both. planet or they can build their own thing from whatever they want so if they want if they like the idea of sustainable food companies but are not that bothered about clean water for example in the climate stuff they can swap those out and bring in more of a people theme and build their own thing but generally people and planet and every area kind of that that that's made up from those two overarching themes you know i'm, I'm reading here something you said that when we invest our wealth into responsible businesses it's all about them seeing the value in our continued existence in terms of how you make that specific in terms of because you know i I would have thought that you know a lot a lot of companies would 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 buy into our continued existence as a good thing but i suppose that you know it's it's down to deeds not words isn't it in terms of how you're monitoring and how you're making sure that that this continues to be the responsible business that you believe in i mean how does that how does that work yeah I mean, that's quarterly basis. There's a big deep dive on an annual basis because a lot of companies report their impact specifically on an annual basis. They report financially on a quarterly and annually ba- an annual basis, but the impact information comes annually. So I would say it's the deepest of deep dives on an annual basis, but we monitor them constantly. It's very rare that a company whose DNA is to solve X problem, who only sells Y product, change so much that they're no longer an impact business. Something may come in which may make us question them. Something in the supply chain may have happened which may make us reassess the overall nature of the business. But it's very rare for a pure play business that's selling this undeniably positive thing to switch entirely. Right. Um, But we are scouring the world for companies that make positive steps 
as opposed and, to... And, th- and those are the ones I'm interested in because I think, yeah. you know, it strikes me that you've got B Corps, you've got a whole range of, you know, ethically minded businesses where this is written into their articles of association, tick in the box. You've got businesses that are making steps that presumably at some point pass a threshold where they become interesting to you. And the thing I'm sort of thinking about is that how do you know you're not a victim of greenwashing Mm. when, you know, ever more sophisticated companies that are able to tell a, you know, a pretty good yarn versus actually ever more sophisticated companies that are actually doing really, really good things? Yeah, I mean, the greenwashing for me has become like synonymous with, ESG investing, environmental, social and governance risk factor investing. So we don't really we don't really stray near ESG from totally honest because that is ripe for greenwashing. Because for as an as an example, banks. So banks score very well on G governance. Ever since the financial crisis, the governance has always been exceptionally good. They have very little E and S to kind of report environmental and social risk, really. So they always score very well on ESG. And so they feature in ESG portfolios. When people think, when, when people who are not in the investment management industry think ESG, they think companies solving climate change or companies solving social problems. And then they see you know, big you know, global bank. And they're like, well, that's a bit strange. That's not what I thought it was. That's the greenwashing area for me because what ESG doesn't do is assess the revenue and the impact of that revenue on the world. It just assesses whether the company is a good corporate citizen and is exposed to any risks on these three kind of elements. And therefore, you get a lot of big tech companies, big banks in because they they pass the sift on those factors. And that is the area of greenwashing that's most rife for me at the moment. Mm. That's and if you and if you're if you're a consumer and wanting to look at investing in these kinds of funds, one of the biggest things and favours you can do for yourself is just look at the top five or ten holdings. And that'll tell you everything you need to know about what you're actually invested in. Because if it's bank, tech companies, and then ExxonMobil's often in there because it scores well on G and certain things, that's when you know it's not really what you think it is and you should try and find something else. It's interesting. I mean, you know, I've read what you've said about ESG and, you know, you've spoken about how Ukraine has exposed a a flaw in this regard. But, of course, the idea has has taken hold in terms of, you know, I I remember when I first heard the acronym ESG, I was like, what is that? You know, and and now, of course, it's, it's a major part of how financial services businesses are reporting and presenting themselves. Is it the case that we should just abandon Abandon the label, or can you actually get in there and reform it and make it more meaningful so that the E and the S do have the weighting that you're talking about? Yeah, I've had this, there are discussions going on in the industry about you know ESG. They say two point zero. I don't want to put the point zero on the end, but ESG two, yes. which is it considers more of the actual revenue and the actual impact within that. I think the acronym as it is today, or the practice as it is today, is being used in the way I describe it in the investment management industry mm-hmm. as a way to keep continue doing what they've always done and what they've always invested in, whilst ticking the box of and we are environmentally socially conscious. So maybe, but. I kind of agree what the Schroeder's CEO said as a year or two ago, which is I think the market over the next five years will, f- will kind of see ESG for what it is and quickly move on past it to impact. And ESG will become of second, third, fourth order importance in a way of assessing a business. Because I'm not saying it's completely unimportant. I'm just saying it's not what people think it is. So you don't want to invest in companies that have governance risk or risk in the supply chain or some environmental risk. You don't want that either. But what I think people th- want is business models that are addressing yeah and and i'm still thinking you know there's that saying let a thousand flowers bloom which is i suppose that there are areas here but you know there are other areas that you know you're interested in like pensions you know where you know you've got huge sort of areas of where capital could be redeployed around an idea and i suppose 
the question that I sort of feel is that even with a business like yours, which has done very well in terms of where you've got it to thus far, it's still, I guess, scratching at the surface in terms of the massive systemic changes that are going to have to yeah. happen to actually mend the planet. And that means mending the system in the first place. Yeah, yeah. We're still, we're still someone that the asset management industry can ignore still, you know? Mm. So I think we need to be much, much bigger. A few key steps in that, you mentioned pensions. We're going really large on pensions from, from the beginning of this year, kind of onwards since we launched our own pension where people can consolidate their old workplace pensions in our in our investments and invest in really positive investments in the background, align their pensions with how they see the future. And for most people they have, even of our target demographic, which is about the average age of 31, they have about 15, 20 grand or more in mm. old workplace pensions. So it's the biggest pot of money that young people have and they don't know what it's invested in. And oftentimes they don't even know they have it or where it is. So we're trying to shine a light on that, bring some transparency to that because if you can nudge that industry, that's where the bulk of people's money is. You have a massive impact. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is in the background of our investments today, we, we use some third-party funds from other asset managers that have been constructed with impact in mind. But as of October this year, all the funds will have been built from scratch by us. So we'll no longer be reliant on anything from the, from the asset management industry and everything will have been built from the ground up by us. So that's a big flag in the ground moment from us, which does put us in, I would say it brings us more into the front of mind of some of the bigger asset management houses because we're directly going for them now by saying that we can create something much better than what they have. Now, now you mentioned younger people as part of that answer. 90% of your users are in the 24 to 39 age bracket. Yeah. And also first-time investors. What do you feel about that? Is that the future? Do you want to go into other age demographics or actually is this is this where the, is this what the brand is there to service this next generation of people that are going to build the planet? Yeah, I think it was always our first initial for, you know, foray into into the market because that's who we are in the team. That's who I, I'm. I'm now at the slightly older end of that kind of age bracket. But that's what that's about me. me. <laughs> that's about me. That. I, think, I think we originally did that because we felt like we understood how to market to those people and build a product for those people because it was us. But I think as you've seen, as we've grown, we started to attract older customers because I don't think these values and this way of thinking is confined to a generation. I think it's very pronounced in certain generations, but it's Mm. by no means exclusive to an age demographic. And I think that there's a lot of people, 40s and 50s, that now invest with us that are some of our biggest customers because they obviously have more money to invest, but they are more aware of what investing is. They've been investing for a while and they now realize that this is the future and they want to do it this way. So I think we, we will broaden out. And if you look at the product development, and the actual look and feel of the product and the brand now, it has grown up considerably since we first launched. Because we've realized that it's not confined to, you know, 30-year-olds. It can be anybody who cares about these issues. Well, I was going to say, because it it strikes me that consciousness is a a big part of this, right, isn't Mm. it, in terms of people becoming activated because they become aware of the issues around them and the consciousness that actually things like like money matters, right? You know, I mean, I, I interviewed Richard Curtis, you know, Make My Money Matter is, is, is his campaign. And I, I suppose you're part of a movement which is about making money matter. I mean, and how, how do you think you're doing on that in terms of the, in, in terms of that, this kind of broader challenge of public consciousness and, and how you awaken it? I think we're doing okay. I'm our, I'm our biggest critic, naturally, you know, because I'm impatient. I can see where we can go. I think 
what it always comes home to me is when we do events with our customers. We're a digital business, so we don't meet our customers one by one. It wouldn't be scalable to do so, but we do events, we do online events, and we do a lot of surveying and feedback. Mm. And what they say back to us about what it's helped them do and how it's changed their mindset about investing what money is, is proof that we're on, we're on to something, basically. And I think the, 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 the limiting factor for us is, is budget and marketing and getting the word out. Because mm. unlike... I mention them again, not because they're the only people in the world, but BlackRock, they can spend, you know, a billion on X and it wouldn't even register. You know, we, we have to prove out our model over and over again, uh, over time, raise money and expand. So right. we're, we're only a couple of years into our journey. I think judges on a 10 year time frame, And I think by then we will have really had an impact on the industry. And I think because of, even though I'd say our overall assets and the management may never be the size of a BlackRock. I think that we can shout above our asset weight because of the number of customers we have, the social media presence, the brand factor. So I think we can feel like a big player without being one in the next few years. But I suppose the other thing is, is that this all say now speaks to Tom, the entrepreneur, the person mm. in a hurry, the person with a passion for a project, you know, the the kind of the great attraction that people have to entrepreneurial businesses. So back to what we were speaking about at the beginning of this interview in terms of the Elon, the Elon Musk factor. I mean, yeah. is are you the Elon Musk of, of the financial services industry? Uh, I wouldn't ever say that because <laughs> I, unlike Elon, I don't think I have some kind of genius. I really don't. I think my mum my and dad brought me up to do the basics exceptionally well. I think that's me. Um, I like to learn, I like to work hard. That on repeat can produce something, I think. But I don't think I have the engineering genius of uh, Elon Musk, so I would never, ever, ever compare myself to someone like that. Well, it, it could have been a good vox spot for the interview, but you have spoken about business being a numbers, stamina, and resilience game. I mean, that mm. does speak to the you know 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. I mean, 100%. in terms of what you've learned about yourself along the way, I mean, I, I was very taken by your quote for life, which was, don't take anything anyone mm. Say to you personally, good or bad, how's that manifested itself for you as a business builder? Yeah, I think one of our team members described, described me a month or so ago as the most stoic person he'd ever met, and I think I've learned that over time. I think some of my family have that naturally, but I don't let any news affect me anymore, good or bad, because I know that good or bad news is right around the corner. Matt, Matt and I, Matt is the founder. We used to talk about uh, it's good hour, bad hour amazing news terrible news amazing news terrible news and my job i feel is to just constantly stay in the middle take everything in my stride and move forward you're always a conversation or two away from a solution to a problem is what i've learned over the past few years oh, what a great piece of advice that is so you've got to you've got to keep the middle of the phone just right. keep in the middle keep going back yourself and just just stay the course i mean that we feel like we've become very very resilient i'd say and and hell-bent on those kind of principles that help us i think in dark times do you think this is what gives you a one handicap in golf? <laughs> yeah, because that is a sport where where you have to be resilient and not get frustrated with yourself. I would say that I get way more frustrated playing golf on my own than I do uh, managing the business, I have to say, because there's something uniquely infuriating about golf, I think. Well, I can't remember who said it, but there's a great golf phrase, which is about the importance of playing the course, not the player. I yeah. mean, is that an analogy that, that works in your own business in terms of what, what it is, you, you know, the, the onward journey for Circa 5000 in terms of what you need to do and what you need to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, I think there's, there are a lot of there are a lot of things from golf and sport generally. I used to play a lot of football, I played rugby, but football and golf be my main sports that 
especially in a startup, especially in a company that's quite a small size that you can learn from. And I think golf, patience and staying calm and moving forward, definitely, definitely true. Let's uh, let's finish not on a question about Manchester United. Well, tempting as it is, but your your uh, your your best tip for life: delete your social media, go outside. Give give a tip to listeners, Tom. Hopefully, they're going to take this podcast with them when they go outside. Well, I they're covering my dad, you know, with all these things. I say, actually, I deleted my. Uh, I've deleted most of my social media. I still have some of the accounts, so it appears like I have them. But Facebook wiped, Instagram don't use. I feel like there's there's two schools of thought. There's like the metaverse is being created. We're all going to live in this digital world. I don't want any part to play in that, if I'm totally honest. And I think there's a lot to be said for like traditional things. So you've got like, a lonely digital twin somewhere in the metaverse. Yeah, like, <laughs> go and see your family and friends. Go and do something outside. Eat some decent food. Sleep. I think these are all you know age old advice that's just ever more true today. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Thanks very much, Tom. Listen, thank you for sharing your story, the story of circa five thousand, and such a. I think a motivating and positive vision about the the things we can do to create the future we all want. Thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. It's been great. Loved it. Thank you very much. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?